This podcast series is brought to you from the University of Winchester, discussing some of the most complex and pressing challenges we face in the world today. So for today's podcast, we have uh, invited Sukanya Poda, who is a senior lecturer in defence studies at King's College London, and she's going to talk about um, the Philippines and the conflict there. Uh, and with us today, we also have uh, three of the MA students on the Reconciliation, Reconciliation and Peace Building uh, Distance Learning course that we teach. Uh, we have Phoebe, Katie and Amy. OK, over to you. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and a bit about your research? Thank you, Margaret. Really delighted to be able to join you and your students here um, today and to talk about my research relating to the Philippines, but more broadly relating to post-conflict reconstruction. I've been researching in war-affected countries for the last 15 years, uh, and I've had the opportunity to do field research in several countries in Africa, um, most specifically in Liberia, in Sierra Leone, in South Sudan. I've done training and capacity building work in Namibia, in Bahrain, in um, in other parts of the Middle East, Egypt. Um, so I've had diverse interaction with both governmental, non-governmental and intergovernmental organizations through training, capacity building and research. In the Philippines, my research um, was more specifically on issues of the Moro insurgency in Mindanao. And I was able to conduct field research in various provinces of Mindanao, like Maguindanao, and Lanao del Sur, and Lanao del Norte. And I was looking specifically at the recruitment and involvement of children and young people in the Moro groups, specifically the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. The conflict in Mindanao in the southern Philippines is one of the longest running civil wars. It started as early as the 16th century when Spanish colonizers tried to subjugate the Muslim tribes. These Muslim tribes occupy most of the territories in Mindanao, in Sulu and Palawan. Islamization started as early as, 12th, as the 12th century, facilitated by relations with foreign traders and other Muslim countries in Southeast Asia. When the Spaniards arrived in the 16th century, these Muslim tribes were already practicing Islam for centuries and had maintained strong political institutions. When the Spaniards left in 1898 without conquering the Muslim communities, uh, they were left to their own devices. The US, of course, colonized the Philippines after the Treaty of Paris in 1898, and the Americans initiated a series of bloody wars against the Muslim communities in Mindanao. They had hoped to conquer the entire Philippine islands, including the thus far uncolonized Muslims whom the Spaniards could never defeat, and they had been labeled as the Moros. The American occupation ended with the illegal annexation of the unconquered Moro communities in Mindanao. When the Filipino-led government ruled the Philippines following the Second World War, there were some efforts to pacify and include the Moro communities in Mindanao. Yet such pacification efforts and inclusion did not last long. It was even distorted with attacks and massacres against the Moro people. Some of the most terrifying um, killings and executions, including the Jabita massacre in 1968 and the Manili massacre in 1971. All of these injustices, along with the proclamation of military rule in 1972 under the Marcos regime, fueled the creation of the Moro National Liberation Front. This group was spearheaded by university-educated or professional Muslims in contrast with the older generation of Muslim leaders who were usually elected politicians. 
The former University of Philippines professor Noor Misori founded the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, and this group was later recognized as a Muslim separatist or a secessionist group by the Organization of Islamic Conference. In 1976, the Libyan government served as a mediator for the first peace negotiations between the Moro Islamic Liberation Front and the government of Philippines under President Marcos, which is known as the Tripoli Agreement. When a new Philippine constitution was inaugurated in 1987 under President Aquino, a provision included the creation of an autonomous region in Muslim Mindanao. This was put into law in 1989 when Congress passed a law creating the autonomous region. The following year, a plebiscite created the Autonomous Region in Muslim Mindanao, ARMM. In 1996, the Moro National Liberation Front and the Filipino government culminated in the signing of the final peace agreement under the leadership of the president, of the then president Ramos. However, the MNLF breakaway wing, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, questioned the contents of the agreement. During the time of President Estrada, an all-out war was declared against the Moro Islamic Liberation Front in 2000. In 2007, President Aro tried to engage in a peace negotiation with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front through the Memorandum of Agreement on the Ancestral Domain. It, however, halted when the Supreme Court declared this uh, project unconstitutional. In 2010, President Aquino Jr. met with the chairman of the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, uh, Murad, in Japan. This paved the way for the creation of the Framework Agreement of the Banks of Moro in 2012, and the subsequent signing of the Comprehensive Agreement on the Banks of Moro in 2014. In 2018, under the leadership of the President Duterte, the Banks of Moro Organic Law was passed. This led to the plebiscite in 2019, asking the Moro people whether they wanted to be part of the new Banks of Moro Autonomous Region. The overwhelming yes in the plebiscite resulted in the creation of the new autonomous region uh, called the Bangsamoro Autonomous Region in Muslim Mindanao, the BARMM, a geographically expanded region with a budget higher than the former autonomous region. It is a product of 42 years of peace processes under seven Filipino presidents. And 10% of the 80 ministers are young people um, coming from the Moro Islamic Liberation Front and the Philippine government. So this inclusion of young Moros in the post-conflict transition in Bangsamoro is mo momentous and it has a great potential for advancing the agenda around youth peace and security and youth inclusion in peace processes. One of the things that was interesting about the research in the Philippines is that we find um, in terms of media portrayals about child recruitment into armed groups, there is a great deal of emphasis on forced recruitment, you know, on um, children being recruited through coercively by various armed groups. But this, however, was not the case in the Philippines. One of the things that I found fascinating about um, the Moro conflicts is that the community and the family um, in these um, different villages and provinces had a very intimate relationship with the armed insurgency. So the insurgents were part and parcel of this community dynamic where the relationship was not really interdependent, it was also familial in the sense that you had people from the community, you know, traveling into these camps the, uh, run by the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, 
they had their cousins, they had their you know kin, they had relatives uh, who were fighters, and they were often you know with young people they were doing ancillary jobs like carrying uh, food, carrying sort of being intelligence or communication related roles. And as a result, there was no coercion. It was always voluntary. And it was driven by this broader support of the community for amongst Moro, you know, uh, land for the Moros. And therefore, this ideological element in terms of the push and also in terms of pull factors, I found that several of the child soldiers I spoke to wanted to join uh, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front because they wanted to be part of this group. They were excited to be part of this group. Akbar, for example, had joined the Moro Islamic Liberation Front in 2007. He was 14 years old when he joined. And this was in response to certain appeals by Commander Dragon. Now, Commander Dragon came from the same hometown or village as Akbar, and he had come asking for fresh recruits and for help and assistance from Akbar's village. So Akbar's role was ancillary in the sense that he was carrying food and heavyweight parcels to the camp, which was around two hours from his village. And this task was allocated to him maybe three times every week. And he also ended up doing odd jobs like cleaning the camp. You know, he was given certain military drills, but he did not learn to formally use weapons. His role was very much that of a non-combatant or a child associated with an armed group. One of the things we see in various conflicts is that you know, children join these groups to be able to access education, uh, military schooling. In the case of the Moro groups, you know, they often attended Quran classes and they learned basic Arabic at the camps. So these camp residents, you know, you had around 100 people, sometimes 50 people, and the children could be 20 odd. And they were all related to each other, you know, by blood through um, kinship ties. And another fascinating element was that they often kept their relationship or their uh, you know, ties with the family. So they were not sort of separated from the family during their time with the group. They often visited their family. They spent weekends with the family. And all of them reported being treated well. There was no abuse. There was no coercion. And they were taken care of because they were almost part of this family. And this was an interesting dynamic of understanding combatant community relations from the perspective of the Moro groups, which are community-based armed groups. Yeah, that sounds really interesting, and it definitely challenges our sort of usual understanding of child soldiers and, and what <clears throat> and how they get recruited. Um, does anyone have any questions they'd like to ask? So, Kanya, I looked at some of your research for um, a study that I was doing, actually, and found it really enlightening, what you were saying then, that um, there was this, that there wasn't any coercion. It kind of challenged all the previous stereotypes that, and those that I'd been reading about, too, about recruitment of child soldiers. In your opinion, what impact has the pandemic had on people in the conflict regions, particularly children? Uh, thanks so much for that question. I know and I'm aware of several studies which have been looking at the impact of school closures on children's mental health and socialization in different regions, not only in conflict-affected regions. Um, the UN Secretary General's Special Representative for Children Armed Conflict, Virginia Gamba, 
has released a report to the Human Rights Council. Uh, reporting was between December 2019 and December 2020. And in this January 2021 annual report, um, she notes that school closures have made children even more susceptible to recruitment and use, particularly children who are in IDP camps and internally displaced um, people camps. And they are facing a great deal of insecurity. Virginia Gamba has also urged various armed actors, parties to conflicts to endorse this um, broad appeal by the UN Secretary General for a global ceasefire during these times of the pandemic. Because of processes like, you know, for conflict management, whether they are ceasefires, whether they are peace negotiations or security sector reform processes, these have all been stalled and delayed. So um, the other point here is that practical guidance is being offered by um, the SRCAC. Uh, practical guidance is being offered by Virginia Gamba's office and her team to mediators to protect children in situations of armed conflict. And this was launched, I think, in February 2020. And this kind of guidance is offering a framework and a very useful one for the various UN agencies so that they are able to include child protection elements in various peace processes. For example, the inter intra-Afghan peace negotiations during September 2020. In the Central African Republic, we know that a child protection code has been promulgated in June 2020, whereby all grave violations, including recruitment and use of children, has been criminalized. And this is part and parcel of the broader concept, you know, and the conceptual framework that guides UN agencies, you know, who work with children associated with armed groups, CAGs, as uh, from framework of victims here, you know, they are looked at from a victim angle. So the Mindanao case of voluntary, recruit, of voluntary recruitment and um, exercise of agency is not as prominent uh, in terms of the UN literature. Um, other achievements during the pandemic period has been various comprehensive action plans have been signed um, just prior to the start of the pandemic with the government of South Sudan. You know, this also includes uh, elements that, you know, the various parties will try and honor um, ways in which they do not violate children's rights or recruit children. Um, a joint action plan has been signed by the Democratic Karen uh, Benevolent Army in Myanmar in November 2020. This is the first armed group which has entered into an action plan with the UN in uh, Myanmar. Since then, you know, things have really gone south. Um, and also there is continued engagement by the UN agencies and the uh, Special Representative on Children Armed Conflict in terms of advocacy in countries like Myanmar, DRC, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, where we see a great deal of active conflicts and um, where children are highly susceptible to becoming involved in and parties to the conflict. Hi, Sakanya. I was just curious, when you're talking about um the children being in less combatant roles, so like the heavy lifting and such. Does this mean then that the children are less likely to be used as a means of getting um, media response or coverage? Because I know in other contexts or some contexts where children are used as child soldiers, it's often to provoke a response from outside perspective. So I'm just curious to hear if that's different. Mm. Um. I just want to take a little bit of a step back 
in terms of answering um, this question. I'm just trying to, you know, formulate my thoughts on this. You see, rebel groups are known to make very strategic decisions regarding their recruitment practices. And this is often informed by the kind of access they have to various economic endowments or resources. So groups which have a great deal of access to economic, you know, high quality, um, high value economic endowments, whether it's diamonds, whether it's uh, oil uh, in the case of Islamic State, they tend to behave in a way which is um, dismissive or they ignore the needs of civilian populations. So they are not concerned about governance. They're not so concerned about protection uh, with regard to very civilian uh, populations. So their interaction very much is abusive of civilian populations. And these are the ones who tend to um, recruit by force. You know, these are the groups which tend to recruit by force, including um, children. And we know this happened with IUF in Sierra Leone. But community-based armed groups, like the moral groups, which are uh, much more dependent on communities for recruits, for resources, for donations, and their initial economic endowments are quite weak, and they often rely on um, diaspora fun funding. And they tend to rely on civilians much more, and therefore the relationship with civilian populations requires a great deal of careful management. They appeal to the civilian population for support. You know, they are trying to do a homegrown insurgency where they have a great deal of local support. And when you look at this broad dynamic in terms of the rebel groups that are involved, you will see that children's roles also kind of uh, vary across the spectrum from being frontline fighters, you know, drugged and put into combat, um, which was the case in many of the West African conflicts, to the Mindanao case, which is again, you know, an example of children uh, performing ancillary roles. Um, so there is a huge spectrum, and I think the use or involvement of children in these different contexts is uh, you know, in line with the strategic motives of the rebel group, you know, whether the rebel group wants to follow certain types of nonviolent recruitment practices, uh, while in other cases, you know, when they have a non-supporting civilian population, you know, they're more likely to adopt violent recruitment practices. And also, this is not static. This change, changes over time depending on, you know, their continued access to various endowments. So if the endowment access changes over time uh, and there is waning support, which was the case with the Moro um, case, uh, which, which was the case with the Moro groups, you know, the, there was waning support over time, we find that uh, the level of forcible recruitment of children as soldiers goes up. That's really, that's really interesting and fascinating to hear. Um, I've got a question, like, did you, did you talk to the parents as well? I'm just wondering whether there was any kind of community pressure on families to support their children joining, or whether the, it was okay for, you know, certain children, for example, not to join. Mm. Um, my brother, that's a really great question. And I was actually able to uh, speak to communities, to elders, to families, um, to parents of children who had, for example, self-demobilized self in Mindanao, who had returned home and didn't want to be part of the Moro groups anymore. 
compared to some of these abusive groups in West Africa that I've mentioned, return and reintegration in Mindanao is very different. You know, there was a self-demobilization process. And if young people did not want to be part of, or even adults did not want to be part of the Moro groups, there was a community-mediated return process in the sense that, you know, they were not prevented or they were not attacked or targeted by the community or the Moro groups, the armed groups, if they decided to return. Because, you know, the relationship with the community was so fluid throughout and they had kept um, their uh, relations intact. Um, in, in this sense, when you say whether there was pressure from the community, I think there is implicit uh, expectation that families and communities who have a brother or who have a son or who have a father or, you know, some relative in the group will, you know, join the broader ideological cause of Abanzamoro when that was the aim of the insurgency. Uh, but at the same time, I think if at some point people felt disillusioned or were, you know, fed up with the fighting, wanted to pursue something else or had been injured, you know, there was no social sanction for choosing a nonviolent pathway. And this was also the case with the first uh, Moro group, the Moro National Liberation Front, when they demobilized and, you know, they got a package from the government, some of them returned home. Often these leaders, you know, were community elders, community leaders, and they were held in high regard, you know, they were respected members of the community. So there was no element of animosity towards fighters who wanted to return. Therefore, in terms of the encouragement, you know, to join, there was often encouragement, but it was not coercive. Um, there was implicit rather than explicit um, expectation with regard to uh, joining groups. Often the wealthier families, I found, used to donate more money, um, zakat, you know, the religious do donations. They used to pay in, uh, in terms of material uh, donations to the Moro insurgencies. Poorer families used to send um, their children, uh, young people and, you know, the children to be part of the Moro group. So it was in kind or it was in terms of labor or material donations. So everybody was part of the implicit you know, expectation was that every family would contribute in some way or the other. You know, the poorer families would send children and young people as labor, um, you know, to work with or on part of, uh, on, on behalf of the group, the wealthier families would, uh, you know, donate zakat. Thank you. I have another question. What's the role of the girls in this? Yeah, so in, in many of the various armed groups I've worked with in terms of their demobilization um, processes in Africa, you know, girls and women are usually either they are fighting or they are abused or they are, you know, in, in terms of ancillary roles, they are wives or sex slaves or companions, however you define it. Uh, in, in the Moro case, because of the religious nature of the conflict and the Islamic norms and uh, principles that were being followed by the group, women usually had a much more conservative role. Uh, women would cook, they would clean, they would be wives, um, they would take care of children, but they did not fight per se uh, in the Moro groups. And there was also much less evidence of any sort of sexual violence 
against women by the Moro groups, although in more recent times, I know that there have been some incidents. Uh, I haven't checked them in any seriousness. There have been certain incidents where the um, state forces have instigated certain attacks on local populations, including women, but not so much with the Moro groups. Uh, Margaret, I had a few questions that you sent before. Yeah. I wanted yeah. to answer them. Yeah, go ahead. So the first is, somebody asked, with the conclusion of the peace process with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front and the passage of the organic law, we've had the establishment of the Bangsamoro Autonomous Region in Muslim Mindanao, which is a BARMM. So how has this affected the rights and prospects of indigenous peoples? And I think this is a really excellent question. The reason is there is a considerable indigenous population across the 12 municipalities of the ARMM. Uh, they have made claims to the ancestral domain or to the land in Magindanao and Lanao del Sur. And according to one estimate, it's almost 123,000 in terms of population. And the claim to land is around 310,000 hectares. Among the various groups, there's a Tedurai group. Sorry, um, among the various groups, the most prominent is the Tedure, and they have been displaced since the 1970s, you know, because of these various clashes and shift in territorial control between the armed forces of the Philippines and the Moro armed groups. Uh, the Tedure, to date, they have not reclaimed their land in the first complex. And um, one of the things that has happened as an offshoot of the um, peace conversations or the peace table conversations is that key indigenous people leaders in Mindanao uh, met in Davao with the presidential advisor on the peace process um, in April 2017. And they have founded a panel as part of the official you know, peace process panel for indigenous people so that there is representation of this group during the peace process. Now this panel is composed of all the various bodies including government agencies and relevant bodies dealing with the question of IPs in the country. And their primary role is to engage, meet and converse with, as well as hear the concerns and inputs and recommendations of IPs through their leaders in the country. And to better implement political representation of the IPs, I know that a Mindanao IP Legislative Assembly has been conceptualized. There's also a technical working group on drafting further policies uh, so that the IPs within Bansamoro um, can come together. And a consortium has been formed, which is led by the Tedure, but there are also other groups like the Lambangian, including the Dululangan and the Manobo tribes, and the non-Islamicized non Sama and Bajaos, as well as the Higaunon, who are involved in preparing and pushing for an early draft around IP-related policies to be in, included in the uh, Vansamoro uh, law, the BBL. And this will become sort of like a Magna Carta for the IPs in, in the Bansamoro, and their representation will be enshrined in it. There will also be a university for them. And it is envisaged that through this technical working group for the IPs, um, there will be greater support for various logistical um, ad advocacy and legal provisions for the IPs. Um do communities react notably differently towards the reintegration of or um, the reconciliation with child soldiers compared to adult combatants? I think 
The core issue here is the nature of conflict and the armed actors that are involved, specifically the type of rebel civilian interactions. If armed groups are abusive of civilian communities, there's a tendency to reject returning fighters, and this is regardless of the age of the combatant. Children who are recruited by force are often involved in atrocities, and this can make their return to their home communities that much more problematic. During my field studies in, the, in West Africa and Liberia, for example, I found that child soldiers who had fought during different phases of the Liberian civil wars, once they had become adults, you know, over the years, you know, even if they were recruited as children, they faced a great deal of stigma. And they were often forced to relocate to urban areas away from their home communities because of the fear of reprisals and because of the stigma that they faced in their day-to-day -day lives. The third conflict I had is how difficult or easy it is, how difficult or easy is it to contextualize a conflict? Should we or does it distract from first-hand experiences? Um, again, I think context is extremely important for the study of peace and conflict. There is a tendency among large organizations like the UN and donors to seek a liberal remedy and to apply certain preconceived templates that may or may not work, uh, depending on whether these norms resonate or have relevance in a given context. And this is part of my more recent research in peacebuilding legacies of children and youth-focused peacebuilding programs in Sierra Leone and Macedonia. Uh, but also in Liberia, I found that, you know, with the security sector reform process, there was a big conceptual contextual divide in terms of what was being conceived at the at the stage of the top down template of SSR versus you know, the reality of informal security provision by multiple actors. And this is one of the things, you know, which emphasizes that there is a futility in terms of applying these strict templates without adapting them to the realities of context. And that is something that has starkly come to the fore through my various field studies. Finally, somebody asked that when studying combatants, insurgents, rebels, do I ever struggle with feeling as though I'm neglecting victim experiences? Um, or do I find the perpetrator victim label more fluid than we, we would like to think? Uh, from my perspective, I feel it depends entirely on the perspective that is being taken. For example, within the dominant narrative or the master frame of international humanitarian and development actors, child soldiers are viewed as victims. And this tends to elicit responses that are centered around child protection frameworks. So one might say that child soldiers are recruited by force and therefore they are victims. I find that this is very simplistic in terms of understanding a far more complex and layered problem of child recruitment into conflicts because there are a variety of push and pull factors at play with regard to child recruitment. Um, there are motivations, there are resource endowments, there are strategies of rebel groups towards civilian actors, which all need to be considered. Besides the level of abusiveness of an armed group towards civilians can also shift over time and in response to how their resource endowments um, dwindle or increase over time. Therefore, during conflict, there are different types and degrees of agency at play on part of both armed actors and civilian communities. And therefore, any blanket assumption around who is a perpetrator, who is a victim, I find is an oversimplification of a very complex and evolving um, reality. Thank you so much. Um, I was <clears throat> quite interested in, in this bit more about recruitment of young men. And how much do you think that ideas around masculinity uh, plays a role in this? I've, you know, there's been other places where you know, ideas around what it means to be a proper young man uh, is linked to 
joining uh, a violent conflict. But how do you think that that, you know, do you think that that played any role in the in the Filipino case study? Mm. To be honest, it's not something I've looked into at all, my group. Okay, that's fine. I, I haven't thought about the idea of masculinity in terms yeah. of the Mindanao case at all. No problem. That's absolutely fine. It's one of the one of the areas I'm quite interested in, but we can talk about that another day. Yeah. Uh, okay. Thank you. Uh, does anyone else have any questions? I wonder your experience as a researcher in a conflict zone and what advice you might give somebody else going into Mindanao to say replicate or uh, conduct some comparative research. Mm. Um, one of the things is when researching in post-conflict countries, I think one of the challenges we face is how do you access the right respondent sample with child soldiers, for example, you know, determining the authenticity of respondent accounts is a major challenge. Um, often I find children tend to present a story which focuses on their victim plot or, you know, on their victim C, which is a terminology uh, coined by Matsutas and Susan Shepler in the West African case, because victim C is looked upon as a navigational tactic in the post-conflict period. Um, but, you know, these kinds of victim plots tend to character, you know, tend to emphasize helplessness, coercion, you know, exposure to violence, trauma, regret. But from a methodological standpoint, I find storytelling um, offers children and young people really powerful means for communicating um, to us their stories. And whether it's Mindanao or any other country, any researcher going in um, to conduct research with war-affected populations, including uh, fighters, should be aware of the fact that there are various layers in terms of the reality of the responses that they can gather because often child soldiers can present a very exotic script, a very unnatural script, a script around ultra experiences, you know, in which they create, they tend to communicate as if, you know, there was somebody else when they were performing a certain role and now they have a normal life, that it was a you know, self-otherization process is what I call it. And by following these stories about their involvement in conflicts, although in the Mindanao case, they are not fighting, but more broadly, if we widen the net to the various uh, you know, armed groups uh, operating, we will find that it's very difficult to, unless you do long-term field work, you know, ethnographic research, where you can keep revisiting the field, where you can keep in touch with respondents, you know, you can't really triangulate these accounts uh, no matter how many people you speak to and cross-check, you know, because you will always be an outsider to that kind of an environment. And also, how do you access the right sample population? I really want to emphasize this because one of the ways is, you know, you work with various NGOs or UN agencies who are implementing projects with children and young people. But from my experience, I found that this often results in an incomplete or biased sample because there's a great deal of cheating or entry of proxies uh, into these uh, projects. Uh, through various nepotistic and you know uh, corrupt practices, and then you end up having a sample which is unrepresentative. A much more uh, easier way to do it is to work in different locations, urban, peri-urban, rural, and to interview broadly populations who are affected by conflict or who are taking part in various post-conflict peace-building projects, so that 
you know, you can do more of a geographic sampling in terms of areas, for example, which are close to the Moro camps and, you know, how proximity to these camps meant that they had closer relationships with Moro groups um, and areas which I found were away from the camps tended to have more distance and were not as exposed to the skirmishes between the AFP and the Moro Islamic Liberation Front and therefore they were more distant to the reality of the conflict. So these are various dynamics to bear in mind uh, when one is doing field working in Danao, for example. Okay, thank you so much to Kanya for taking part in the podcast today. This has been really, really interesting. And thank you so much to Phoebe, Amy and Katie as well for taking part. And uh, Simon sent in uh, a question as well. Thank you. Thank you. All right, thank take care. Thank you so much. Having us. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you.